Hello, you're listening to a podcast from Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Radio Maria is a 24-7 Catholic radio station broadcasting online via our app, Radio Maria Play, and on DAB in an increasing number of areas. You can follow us on social media. And if you enjoy this program, please do click like and subscribe to us on your podcast provider. Radio Maria relies entirely upon listener donations. We have no other sources of funding, so please do consider supporting us with a monthly or one-off donation so that we can continue to keep providing great programming free at the point of access. To donate or find out more, visit us at radiomariaengland.uk. This is Radio Maria, a very warm welcome. I'm Edmund Zengeni, and this is Just Life. And today on Just Life, we have the privilege of having our guest, Father Mark Vickers. Father Mark Vickers grew up in Lincolnshire. He studied history at Durham University and worked for a large law firm in the city of London, He thought about a career in politics. God, however, had other plans, and Father Mark has no regrets. Father Mark became a Catholic in 1996 and studied for the priesthood at the English College in Rome. He was ordained in 2003 and served as the parish priest and university chaplain in Herefordshire and West London. He's written a number of books on church history, and his most recent work, God in number 10, the personal faith of the prime ministers from Buffalo to to Blair was launched in Parliament in October 2022. Father Mark, very warm welcome to Just Life and to Radio Maria. Good morning. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So what I'll do, I'll hand over the airwaves uh, to you and our listeners. And uh, we're very uh, curious to know what um, what made you want to write this book. (laughs) Fine. As you said, so I, I was interested in politics earlier, so if I fought a local government campaign, I was shortlisted for a seat for Parliament, and so things went in a completely di- different direction, so if God had other plans. Uh, but I think politics never really leaves the bloodstream. Of course, as a priest, you're not never party political, but so if I, you always end up uh, staying up far too late on election night, watching the results come in, mm. keeping an eye on things. And the immediate cause was I was in the States visiting a priest friend a few years back. I had a long flight ahead of me. I took a book off his shelves, and there's a chapter on someone called Arthur Balfour, who was the first of the prime ministers I cover in the 20th century. I thought I knew my British prime ministers quite well, but um, I didn't know that Arthur Balfour was writing and lecturing on philosophy and theology as prime minister. I didn't know that he was having seances in Downing Street. Wow. Uh, and I thought if I didn't know that, uh, uh, what didn't I know about the other prime ministers and their religion? And the answer was a huge amount because, sadly, so far, their biographers don't cover this. And, and the reason is, isn't that the prime ministers weren't interested in religion. So far, as I uh, came to discover from uh, a lot of reading, a lot of original research, and so some of them were people of tremendous faith, so far, and all of them interacted with faith in some context. And so it wasn't that they weren't interested in religion, it's that the people who write books about politicians aren't interested in religion. I see, I see. That's very interesting. So could you explain to our listeners how you uh, went about researching it and uh, and then structuring the, the book? Sure. So, uh, so I did a lot of reading, so that obviously there are books about our prime ministers. And as I said, a lot of them just miss out in any religious dimensions because that doesn't interest the people who wrote those books. But I had to read the books for, uh, to get background information, to get leads. And then I went into the archives. And so fortunately for most of the prime ministers, uh, you can go into so far, the libraries in Oxford, Cambridge and London and read their papers, read their letters, read their diaries. And the good thing is they so far spoke openly. You might think, well, politicians never say what they mean. Well, these people did because they were writing privately. So they're writing to their family and friends. They never imagined that one day the public researchers would be 
reading their private correspondence. So they wrote very openly, and people did talk about religion to each other because uh, it was the subject matter of their day. A lot of their family and friends were ordained ministers, and actually three of the prime ministers considered ordination themselves. So it was very much a part of their DNA. So, so there's a lot to be discovered. And of course, with the more recent prime ministers, you can talk to their family and friends. Uh, I tried talking to Tony Blair. <laughs> Interestingly, despite Cherie saying that he'd be willing to talk, I didn't get a response from him. The person I did speak to, so or the person I had contact with, was John Major, who I was less expecting to be interested. But uh, it was during COVID, so he said, uh, do you mind if we don't meet? But please send me your questions. He phoned up three times to say, so sorry, I haven't got back to you yet, but I, I want to do this properly. And I got nine pages of his spiritual musings from him. Wow. What was inside that? Well, I, I, again, sort of a great deal that people wouldn't have realized otherwise, that uh, he was a baptized Anglican, so sort of, uh, hadn't had much contact with the church when he was growing up, so, but is a man who takes faith seriously. And he describes himself as a believer at a distance, he, he says he rather regrets that he feels that the church didn't reach out to him, but it matters. So, for example, when he took Britain into the uh, first Gulf War, mm. he had both the Archbishop of Canterbury and Cardinal Hume, Archbishop of Westminster, into Downing Street, and he wanted to discuss the morality of that war with them. He said without their assurance that, uh, uh, that the first Gulf War was a just war, as Christians would understand it, he would have felt deeply uncomfortable about taking this country into so far, into that conflict. Wow, so far. That's, that's a, a very interesting. I never never knew that. So uh, he was a man with a conscience then, obviously. With a conscience, and also sort of a conscience still formed by faith. And mm. as he says, and so far, is it a bit, a bit of a distance? He says he regrets not being confirmed. He says he will slip into the back of church and so far in an evening and say his prayers and so he says he has lots of questions and not all the answers but he's someone for whom faith is uh, a very light issue and that's true for all the prime ministers of the last century and that's one of the big conclusions of my book that so far we think and it's true that britain became a less christian country in the course of the 20th century so so the, the numbers going to church and chapel dropped off massively, but that's not true of the prime ministers, and they go in completely the different directions. So for the first half of the century, uh, 11 prime ministers, only one, so for Stanley Baldwin in the 1920s, 30s, could be described as an orthodox Christian. Uh, all the rest were, uh, frankly, either sceptics, they had their doubts, or they were bonkers. And yet, from the 1950s onwards, so, so far, uh, with only one exception, Jim Callaghan, so far, they would all have described themselves as believing Christians. Right, so there was and an increase. in many cases, that was backed up by practice. Okay, so that was in an increase after the war, So, shall we say? In the very much so, yes, very much right, so. What would you put that down to, do you think? An interesting question, obviously, one I tried to address. So, first of all, why didn't they believe in the early 20th century when mm. you expect that to be more an age of faith? Exactly. And I think there are various reasons for that, so so far, they tended to be drawn more from the upper classes who, uh, to some extent, had lost their faith in a very early stage. And so getting right back to the end of the 19th century, when they were being educated, when they were young people, so far, there was a big decline of faith amongst the educated, the political classes. And there could have been two reasons for that. So one is the advances in science, Darwin seeming to disprove uh, the truth of the Bible. Uh, in fact, my research shows that not a single prime minister had their faith weakened as a result of science. What was far more damaging was theology coming out initially of Germany, so of, uh, so of, uh, basically sort of saying, oh, Christianity is a later invention of the church. Jesus, if he existed, was just a good man. He wasn't the son of God. He didn't perform miracles. He can't teach us with authority. There was no resurrection. So those and that pre, was all those pre-war prime ministers were sort of in, came from that aristocratic background that were very much influenced by these, well, the secularisation, shall we say, at least. Yeah, they'd been at Oxford and Cambridge and they'd picked all this up. And the sad thing is that their schools and Oxford and Cambridge were full of Anglican clergymen who weren't able to address these uh, uh, issues. And we can, those are very, very clear answers, but that wasn't happening. So the other thing that sort of militated against faith in the early period is the Victorian Sunday. And so a couple of the prime ministers... and. Uh, said that they feared heaven more than they feared hell because they thought it was going to be like uh, 
their Sunday chapel, their Sunday school, which have been intensely boring. So, so uh, just, just religion, Protestant, Puritan religion for them was just a matter of restrictions. So why did things change in the late 20th century? That's more difficult to say. So, um, partly it is that the, a lot of those Victorian Puritan restrictions were lifted. And I think that's true for someone like Margaret Thatcher. She grew up in a very strict Methodist home in Grantham in Lincolnshire. Uh, her grandmother sort of, uh, really prevented them doing anything, sort of, uh, particularly on Sunday, uh, meeting friends, listening to the radio, reading newspapers. And Margaret Thatcher's elder sister rebelled against her and I think lost her faith. Sort of, uh, uh, the grandmother actually died when Margaret Thatcher was young and uh, those restrictions were lifted. Uh, and perhaps that goes some way to sort of, uh, saving Margaret Thatcher's faith. Sort of, uh, other reasons, you could argue perhaps uh, the Victorians, the early 20th century, they thought there's going to be this continual progress. All you needed was humanities of a, uh, a more informed, more liberal humanity. Well, that gets blown to pieces by the experience of two world wars, Nazism, communism. So mm. uh, there's not much evidence for that in sort of... Uh, in the research. So uh, you could say it's because the prime minister become less aristocratic. The middle classes are the type who are more likely to be in church or chapel on a Sunday. Again, the research doesn't bear that out. Two of the most devout prime ministers uh, of the later period were Harold Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume. So both of them were very grand old Etonians, sort of aristocrats. So that doesn't really sort of, uh, mm. add up. So a very interesting thing is there's a, well, there's a, Sigmund Freud says that religion is a human invention, so just it's the need for a father figure. And as you lose the need for the father figure, you lose the need for God and religion. There's a very interesting American called Paul Witts, a Catholic psychologist, who turns that on its head. And he says, well, actually, psychology explains uh, atheism. So that atheism is the result of what he calls uh, a deficient father. So someone whose father died young or was physically or emotionally absent or with whom they had a bad relationship. Uh, and he said, uh, he gives a lot of examples of prominent atheists and so forth. He, he said that it's all the result of having a deficient father. Well, my prime ministers are quite a small sample, but that tends to bear uh, out his contention that those prime ministers who had a bad relationship with their father tended not to be believers. Uh, those who had a good relationship with their father's uh, were, were Christians. So interesting, so that's something to be explored. Right. It must have been amazing for you to discover these surprises and these similarities uh, coming out of the blue, perhaps very unexpectedly, and then having to put them all together and have a bird's eye <laughs> yeah. view and see what's different where, and then you go down a, a whole new road by explaining why why there, there are mm -hmm. these differences. Excellent. Um, so... On a personal level, uh, Father, which prime minister stood out the most for you? Well, different prime ministers for different reasons. Uh, someone like Winston Churchill was desperately sad. So these prime ministers who lacked faith, so, uh, it didn't make them so, happier people. A lot of them thought they were throwing off restrictions, but uh, there were prime ministers in the early 20th century who suffered from massive depressions of a uh, people like uh, Andrew Bonalore, so for, uh, the first Labour Prime Minister, James Ramsay MacDonald, also Winston Churchill, the, the war leader. So for, uh, in many cases, um, I think that's lack of faith. So, so for, uh, uh, they wanted to believe in an afterlife for their loved ones. The, and yet the fact that they'd sort of thrown over Christianity, the resurrection, so for, they felt they couldn't believe anymore. And quite a number of them uh, turned to spiritualism, turned to seances, turned to all kinds of nonsense, uh, which couldn't give them that assurance of uh, personal sort of survival after death, that the fact that they're loved by God, so that, and it produced real profound uh, depression. Churchill suffered from massive depression. So that, there was uh, one of his ministers, Quinton Hogg, Lord Hailsham, who was a very strong Christian, went to see him and said, look, Prime Minister, please pray. So, please try and recover some faith. And Churchill basically wanted to, but so couldn't. So, so, and uh, Lord Hailsham left him saying, I, uh, in tears, saying, I felt I just left a soul clad in dust and ashes. So you get wow. that on one, one side, and then the, the other side, you get someone like Harold Macmillan, 
uh, prime minister in the late 1950s, early 1960s, completely the opposite. So, so uh, despite pressure from his family uh, in the other direction, so, uh, he was a very strong uh, high Anglican. So, uh, he understood uh, theology, he understood the basis for his faith, he had an active prayer life, the sacraments were important to him. Um, he didn't sort of wear that on his sleeve, but so if you read his diaries, you read his correspondence, you see uh, how his Christian faith sustained him. And he had a tough time. So far, he suffered very severe uh, wounds in the First World War. He was in pain for much of the rest of his life. Uh, his wife was having an affair with one of his colleagues for most of their marriage. And it really was his Christian faith that was sustaining Macmillan during this time. And when it comes to sort of political events, to international affairs, it was prayer that was sustaining him. There was a big treaty in the 19, early 1960s, one of the first attempts to bring the Cold War to an end, sort of limiting sort of nuclear weapons uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union. And in his diaries, of, uh, Macmillan reveals how he was praying desperately so every night for the success of these peace initiatives, and it bore fruit. Wow. So it's a, a real mixed bag we have then, don't we? It's a very mixed bag, yes. Great, great. Well, Father, this is a fascinating conversation we're having here, and um, I just want to uh, tell our dear listeners if they'd like to get involved with the conversation, and we do encourage that, 6-4. And I'm going to put a little bit of music on now. This is a, a song Father Mark's chosen. It's called I Arise Today. Light of sun, radiance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of wind, depth of the sea, stability of earth, firmness of rock. I arise today. is Radio Maria a very warm welcome back and this is Just Life and we have here on the line from West London Father Mark Vickers 
who's been giving us a very interesting talk on uh, his book, God in Number 10, which, as from the title, you can tell, it deals with the spiritual uh, spiritual life of the prime ministers that have, uh, have had the had the chance to rule us over, over these decades. Father, I'd like to get back a little bit about um, the non-Christian spiritualist mm. attempts that um, various prime ministers have made. Uh, f- first of all, how prevalent was it? And second of all, what, what was the root of it? Okay, so, so, so what, there were 19 prime ministers in the 20th century. So far, all of them, so all of them without exception, came from Christian homes. So... Other faiths weren't an issue during this time. Uh, And the sad thing is, um, certainly in the earlier period, a a lot of them felt that uh, the Christian faith wasn't convincing. So as we were talking a little bit earlier, sadly, they weren't given convincing intellectual answers by the church to some of the genuine questions they had and deserved to have answered. And if they felt that Jesus Christ and the resurrection didn't provide an answer, particularly to their questions, what happened after death? What happens to my loved ones when they died? So they looked elsewhere. So, and we forget how prevalent spiritualism was at the end of the 19th century, well into the 20th century. If you drive some, around some of our towns, you'll still see, they're probably not used, but you'll see buildings which say spiritualist church on them. People were meeting together. They were looking for the spiritual, but they were no longer looking towards Jesus Christ, uh, the way, the truth, and the life. They were looking elsewhere. They were dabbling in the spirit uh, spirit world. And that was true for a few of our prime ministers. Some, uh, Arthur Balfour, so, so far, he and his family so far, got involved in the spirit, spirit, spiritualism. They were having seances. He got involved pretty much as a response to the deaths of his mother and his fiancée. So far, the first Labour prime minister, again, suffered tragedy. He lost his wife. He lost his son, Young. He, too, turned to the world, world of spiritualism. So, uh, uh, Winston Churchill so, <laughs> had his own so, uh, private astrologer, I think, so, uh, based in Norwich. And so, uh, this astrologer was writing to him and saying, the stars are saying today is a, a good day to settle this strike or to take this initiative in international affairs. Right, this is and Churchill, ordinarily, yeah. So, I think uh, cabinet ministers were slightly laughing at him, but so, uh, Churchill was raising all this at the cabinet table. So, so, uh, so it, it, it was going on all the time. So Clement Attlee, Labour Prime Minister after the Second World War, his wife was having so, uh, seances in Downing Street. Anthony Eden, Conservative Prime Minister in the 1950s, his mother was consulting a medium. So far. It's quite amusing, actually, looking at all of this. And so far, because you can see uh, either this is auto-suggestions of a they're coming up in their own minds with what they want to hear, or it's fraud, and so people are sort of uh, sadly sort of playing on the desires, the emotions of needy people. Mm. So, uh, but when you look at Arthur Balfour, all his ghosts, he was, he was a conservative leader, so uh, beginning of the 20th century, all his ghosts were conservatives. So, uh, uh, when you look at uh, Ramsay MacDonald, Labour leader, all his ghosts were Labour. So, so uh, right. uh, <clears throat> There doesn't seem to be much authenticity there. And in fact, a few of the mediums that they were consulting were exposed as frauds. They were purporting to sort of carry these messages from the spirit world. And so far, uh, some of them were exposed and so that was shown that they were sort of really exploiting the, these people. So, so it was desperately sad, so sort of, desperately sad that they felt that Christianity wasn't speaking to them. Of course, and sort of, uh, we're on Radio Maria, so far, we would say part of the problem is that... Uh, they didn't have a Catholic perspective. None of the prime ministers in office in the 20th century were Catholics. And so uh, that, that early period, uh, most of them were sort of quite virulently anti-Catholic. So, so uh, what they were lacking was the teaching of the church. What they were lacking was uh, the comfort of the sacraments. Mm. So do you think any of these sciences may have had um, demonic origins at all? Well, I, I think all seances have something of the demonic about mm. about them. So yes, and so uh, unfortunately, none of them. So uh, it wasn't an ongoing thing. So uh, in most cases, I think it was connected to sort of tragic circumstances, deaths in the family. They were looking for comfort, and they were looking in the wrong places. And so uh, 
I don't think any of them sort of, uh, it was an ongoing thing. So otherwise, the consequences could have been much more serious. Right. So as a Catholic priest and the author of this book, when we look at all these rather somewhat tragic and sad cases of prime ministers who are in pursuit of um, a spiritual grounding, what advice would you give them if you could? Uh... <laughs> Jesus Christ, the way, the truth and the life. Right. So far. The sadness is that they were brought up, I said all of them, in Christian homes, some of them very, very strongly. So, uh, so some of them will be going to chapel uh, at least three times on a Sunday. They were reading their Bibles. They were saying their prayers. Uh, it is sadly the time that Protestant England begins to fall to pieces. So a uh, hundred years ago, so, uh, the division wasn't between believing and non-believing. It wasn't between sort of... Uh, Protestant and Catholic, it, uh, the divisions in this country essentially were between sort of different forms of Protestantism, whether that was the Church of England uh, or sort of uh, chapel, by which we mean Methodist, Baptist, Congregationalist, Church of Scotland, so, so far. And it really is the beginning of the decline. So, so far. And at that early stage, at least, people weren't looking towards Catholicism. So, uh, there's some very strong anti-Catholic rhetorics so, so far. That first prime minister who got involved in seances, he talked about his loathing for Catholicism. Right. The next couple of liberal leaders were profoundly anti-Catholic, uh, even right up to someone like uh, Anthony Eden in the 1950s. Uh, he says, I have no love for the Church of Rome. Well, that's a massive understatement. So that it wasn't a fact of having no love. He had an irrational hatred right. of uh, Catholicism. So um, why is that? And these people had a great sense of superiority. So uh, it was the era of the British Empire. Mm. So they associated the British Empire with so far, Protestant Christianity. So far, Rome, uh, Catholicism was seen as something foreign. It was seen as something Irish. It was seen as something as a restriction on so far, British freedom, British democracy. So far, of course, they a, didn't Catholic, actually gain. a Catholic couldn't even become a member of Parliament until quite recently. So Catholics were allowed into Parliament from the Emancipation Act of 1829. So throughout all this period, <clears throat> you could be a Catholic and a member of Parliament, and there were Catholic members of Parliament. Um, it was still very much frowned upon. So I said one of my favourite Prime Ministers is Harold Macmillan. Harold Macmillan came very, very close to conversion to Catholicism, uh, during his time at Oxford as a student, and then shortly afterwards, when he was going off to fight in the First World War, he was within a hair's breadth. But had he become a Catholic, and he wouldn't have gone on to be prime minister. So, right. um, okay, it's interesting. So, uh, so not all the prime ministers, by any means, were all Church of England. Although they all had this involvement in appointing Church of England bishops, they were part of the Anglican establishment. So. For, a lot of them, so from the early 20th century, were Baptists. Uh, you had a few Church of Scotland people. So for, you had people from Congregationalist or Methodist backgrounds, including Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and also, they didn't have a problem with agnostics or atheists either. So people who so for, either didn't believe or didn't know what they believed. So for, the only problem they had was with Catholics and so far. You, you could. I, I, it would have been very difficult to conceive there being a Catholic prime minister in the uh, 20th century. And also, I think uh, it was difficult to conceive we've now got a Hindu prime minister. I think even right up to the 1990s, it would have been difficult to have thought that there could have been a practice of Muslim or Hindu in, sort of, uh, in Downing Street. Either you had to be a mainstream Protestant or sort of a, <laughs> an atheist mm. or ag agnostic. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that. Well, this is a real fascinating uh, gallery and exploration of uh, 20th century Britain and, more importantly, uh, the faith of the people who've, uh, who've been in charge of, the, of this country. So you said before that um, there were rather poor uh, apologetics coming from the church in order to justify yeah. the faith. Has anything changed since then? I think so, yes. And so... Uh, and the prime ministers, time and again, so particularly during their school days when they're at college, they talk about the completely useless sermons they have to listen to so if, uh, during their time in school chapel, in college chapel, or in their sort of churches. And they just weren't addressing the issues of, of the day, what mattered to people, either in terms of their personal experience 
or uh, wider sort of intellectual questions, uh, uh, the national life, sort of uh, desperately sad. It's interesting, sort of uh, people like Margaret Thatcher talk about how sort of she really engaged with faith for the first time at an intellectual level when she was at Oxford and she came across the writings and the broadcasts of C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and she kept going back to them throughout her life. She was reading C.S. Lewis. A lot of the prime ministers, they were interested. Faith uh, continued to be on the radar. Uh, either they were looking at the wrong kind of materials. So in the early period, they were reading a lot of material that was destructive of faith and took it, uh, came from the starting point that it wasn't true. So, so uh, uh, they continued reading. Tony Blair said that uh, religion was more important to him than politics. And that's borne out by his reading material. He was reading a lot of <clears throat> theology. Uh, in his case, I think sometimes of rather mixed sort of, uh, helpfulness. But also he was reading his Bible every day. There was no, uh, no doubt about that. So for, uh, scripture was incredibly important to Tony Blair. So you've got situations where sort of, Tony Blair is on the plane to Israel for the funeral of uh, an Israeli prime minister. And he sat next to Jonathan Sachs, the sort of chief rabbi. And Jonathan Sachs, in the middle of this flight, he's got Tony Blair on one side and the then Prince of Wales, King Charles, on his other side. And he ends up giving a Bible lesson so, so, uh, from the Old Testament, obviously, <laughs> to so, uh, Tony Blair and King Charles. Wow. And Jonathan Sachs went to see Tony Blair regularly in Downing Street. They'd always talk about official matters first. And then they discuss scripture afterwards. Amazing. Tony Blair is fascinating. We tend to, we tend to forget that he's half Irish, so that we think of him as Anglo-Scot. And in fact, his mother's family were all sort of Protestant Irishmen. His grandfather was uh, master of the local Orange Lodge. His uh, grandmother made him promise that uh, he'd never marry a Catholic, right. which of course he promptly disregarded. So. Uh, he got it. The Irish peace process was going on during his time. He might have thought, well, this is going to be a problem. Here you have Tony Blair, although nominally Church of England, was going to a Catholic mass with his wife and children. Uh, wasn't that going to go down badly with the Ulster Unionists? No. And Ian Paisley recognised in Tony Blair a man of faith, and they exchanged reading material. They'd send Christian books to one another. After the talks were finished, they'd end up discussing religion together. So... Religion is much more there in political life than so far, than the mainstream media would have us believe. Mm, absolutely. And that is a great thing about the book that, um, like you said, the mainstream media tends to sort of conveniently sweep it all under the carpet. The famous phrase is that we don't do God. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, Alistair Campbell there. Yeah. So. And absolutely. That's not an indicator. And Alistair Campbell, as you say, he said, we don't do God. And his problem was that Tony Blair did do God exactly. far too much for his liking. Exactly. So that, uh, it kind of flew back on his face, that line, didn't it? It was like a boomerang. Yes. <laughs> He's the, the spin doctor of the prime minister. And uh, it's spinning back. And right that's not a recent it. concern so far by the media. So, so you get Stanley Baldwin, who, again, was a strongly believing Christian uh, prime minister in the 1920s and 30s. He said that he was led by God into national life. He felt that he had a divine mission. And he was very clear that this came from God uh, to bring healing to national life after the First World War. He felt that Lloyd George had been far too corrupt, that there needed to be Christian morality in public life. He felt that uh, there needed to be healing between social classes, that there needed to be healing with all the strikes in industry. And he believed that God was giving him his mission to do this. And some of his... Uh, the people in the mainstream media, some of the sort of uh, politicians were very uneasy about this. They didn't like this at all. Uh, one of his cabinet colleagues said, so for, uh, Stanley Baldwin's rather dangerous. He goes off to political meetings and he doesn't talk to them about politics. He talks to them about John Wesley and Methodism. This shouldn't be happening. So for, uh, the Financial Times said, so for, uh, Stanley Baldwin is the first revivalist uh, the Conservative Party has produced. And we very much hope that he'll be the last. So the establishment didn't like this, that you have a prime minister who's informed by faith. The interesting thing, it doesn't seem to have done him any harm in the country. His electoral success suggests that 
ordinary men and women so, so have no problems with their uh, politicians being believing Christians and being prepared to talk about that. Wow. Could you, sorry, could you just repeat that last line there? So I don't think, so I was talking about Stanley Baldwin, mm-hmm. the prime minister in the 20s and 30s. The establishment didn't like the fact at all that he talked about religion so in his speeches. And so he was very upfront about his Christianity. Uh, I don't think that that did him any harm. He was a very successful prime minister in terms of winning elections. Uh, so I don't think ordinary people have any problems with their politicians being upfront, believing Christians. So you can see that with someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg, and he's uh, today he's, of a, he's a very Marmite figure. Not all people by any means believe in his, uh, like his politics. Mm. But I think that he's uh, very upfront about his Catholicism do, does him no harm whatsoever. So mm. people like authenticity. Yeah, I like, I mean, uh, the reason I asked you to repeat that last line wasn't because I lost a connection or I wasn't concentrated. I just wanted to reiterate it in my mind that um, I think it's very true. And I think that us listeners, Catholics here who are listening into this program now live or on the rebroadcast or on a podcast can take something away from this. That the establishment, yes, it might want to suppress uh, mm. our faith and belittle it and... Um, yes and marginalise and give us no voice whatsoever. But like you um, correctly pointed out, the average person, the ordinary guy on the street, yes. doesn't really care. In fact, they appreciate... Well, I, you, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of indifference there. But I think there's also a lot of admiration for people who are prepared to speak exactly, about yeah. what matters to them. And, and Gordon Brown picked up on this after he left office, and sadly not joint while he's in Downing Street. But he says, he, with hindsight, he's upset that he didn't talk about his strong religious faith while he was prime minister, wow. he okay. said, we're bringing an incomplete version of ourselves to the table. Wow. If we leave our religious faith at the door of Downing Street or the House of Commons, if something is important to us, uh, we should talk about it so people can see who we are, what makes us tick, the kind of people we are. So, so and he's right. And so just as sad as that he didn't and not only, say that. And not only is he right, what you've just said can be applicable to any Catholic in the secular world. And we must take... Yeah, absolutely. Take a lesson from that. These are people who mm. have the most important job in the in the country under huge amounts of stress and strain. And if they're coming out with these testimonies after having left office, yes, we'll yeah, people it. don't respect us for keeping quiet about our faith. I think they rather despise us if mm. we do that. So, so far, even if they disagree, my experience as a priest is that uh, yeah, there's a lot of indifference out there. But they say, "Good for you." And so, a lot of people say, "I really admire the fact that you believe something, yeah. that you have this faith." I'd like to share it sometimes. I, I don't, I can't, but I really admire the fact that this is important to you mm. and I really appreciate the fact that you're talking about it. Mm. I was in a cab the other day with a Muslim ca- cab driver mm. and he had what looked like, to me, from my perspective, a rosary. And it wasn't. It yes. was, a, it was, yeah. a, it was a, an Islamic prayer, uh, beads, yeah. prayer beads, exactly. And I took up my rosary and we started talking about, I said, what do you do? Okay, well, this is what we do. We, we uh, pray to Our Lady, you know. Yes, it's a big lesson for us, isn't it? We yeah. shouldn't be afraid to talk about faith. Yeah. Uh, and the guy was looking at me as he's driving and he's like keeping his eye on the road, but look, listening to the conversation. And as I paid up at the end, I said, that's interesting. I said, yeah, that's interesting when you cross cultures and you, you learn something. So, and so Peter says we should always give the reason for the hope we have within us. And sometimes we're not very good at that. We need to sort of, uh, be more confident to trust the Holy Spirit. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. Well, look, I'm going to take another music break because I must follow the format of the program. Sure. <laughs> so what I do, um, we've got now Herbert Parry and Jerusalem.
This is Radio Maria and you're listening to Just Life. And today we've had a very interesting talk given by Father Mark Vickers, author of God in Number 10, a book which chronicles the spiritual history of the prime ministers of the last century. And we have online, actually on air, uh, Tim, who'd like to ask you a question, Father. Hello, Tim. Hi. Um, Good morning, Tim. Um, Father Mark, thank you so much for a, a wonderful talk. Um, really fascinating. And um, I have a question. Um, I've noticed that sometimes um, in American politics, um, you see, at least in my opinion, sometimes the the, the president kind of um, putting their faith in the forefront of their politics as yes. a way to gain... Um, well, at least in, in the way that I see it, it seems like it, it can gain a certain kind of uh, popularity. Um, yes. But I feel like the, the climate in the UK is quite different. I, I myself am I'm not English, as you probably can hear from my accent. I'm, I'm South African. Yes. Um, but I just wanted to know if, if, if there is a, maybe a similar dynamic at certain points or maybe the opposite dynamic, um, and perhaps if you could speak about that. No, good question. Thank you. So you, you're absolutely right. We are different from America. And there's a great consciousness of that. And there was a desire to keep it the same. So, uh, And that was true going back to the beginning. It's not a recent thing in this country. So uh, perhaps it's the English uh, personality characteristics. We are reticent about our faith. So there were only two prime ministers during the 20th century who put faith uh uh, up front, and those were sort of Stanley Baldwin, whom I mentioned in the 20s and 30s, and to a large extent, Tony Blair, sort of the last prime ministers of, of the 20th century. So uh, the rest of them were very cautious. And partly I think it is this English reticence, this silliness about not being prepared to talk about matters of faith publicly. At the beginning, there was also a desire not to alienate voters, not because they wouldn't vote for you if you're Christian, but there was quite a big split between church and chapel, between the Church of England on the one hand and the other Protestant denominations on the other. Uh, there were divisions about faith schools and other things. So they were concerned not to alienate voters from the other side. So, so also not a bad thing. So for, there was a genuine sense of humility. So for, they didn't want to be seen to be preaching one thing in terms of faith, and yet failing to practice is another. They didn't want to be seen to be guilty of hypocrisy. So you get Margaret Thatcher, who's not always noted as a paragon of humility. And she said um, publicly, she said, sort of, uh, I would very much count myself as a religious person, but I measure myself by my imperfections. I'm very, very conscious that I don't measure up uh, as I should in all respects as a Christian. So, uh most of the prime ministers did have that sense of humility, the sense of not that they weren't proud people when it came to Christianity. So, so, so I think there are various things going on. It's, it's English reticence, it's humility, it's not wanting to be like the states where they paraded their faith uh, on their sleeves to gain votes. So, yeah, good question. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, could I ask another question? Is there time? Sure. Um, I was uh, recently I read. Uh, um, Eric Metaxas's book on um, William Wilberforce, mm. and um, he talks about the relationship between Wilberforce and um, the Prime Minister at the time, um, Pitt. And yes. uh, I, I wondered, sort of, what research did did that come into your research? Um, well, it's a hundred years before the book, but um, so when I finished this book, sort of, uh, I thought, where do I go next? And so, there were quite a lot of people pressing me to sort. Of, do the prime ministers of the 21st century. And as a priest, I don't think I should become a political commentator. So what I've done is I've gone backwards. I've gone back to the faith of the prime ministers of the 19th century. So Pitt, uh, the younger Pitt, is the first of those prime ministers. As you say, he was close friends from an early age with Wilberforce, the sort of, uh, yeah. great evangelicals, the great sort of, uh, worker for the emancipation of the ending of the slave trade. Wilberforce realized from a very early stage that Pitt wasn't a strong believer, so whether he had any belief at all is arguable. He was a workaholic. He, he died young, so sort of, uh, it was work that sort of orientated Pitt. So he wasn't in many, he was brilliant in some ways, and he 
got together the finances to allow Britain to be able to maintain almost single-handedly so far, uh, the revolutionary, the Napoleonic Wars. But there was a, a dimension of him that was missing, and he never married, he didn't have a family, so so far, faith doesn't seem to have been very important to him. So whereas Christian faith very much motivated sort of Wilberforce in his uh, desire to sort of end sort of slavery, they were all children of God, we were all fundamentally equal, that was missing on the part of uh, Pitt. So Pitt was a, a decent man, so, far, so Wilberforce was playing on his decency rather than on, on faith, which I think was largely missing, sadly, for Pitt. Right. Great. I didn't, I didn't realize the timeline of your book, but yes, that, that, that is an interesting question. So, well. so, hopefully there's going to be a prequel come out, but it, go. it's going to take a while. There's a lot of research to do. All right. Thanks a lot, Tim. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye. Great. So, Father, um, in the time we've got left, I'd just like to speak about the kind of morality of these prime ministers, mm. the moral compass. Briefly, within what the time remaining... Could you give us an overview? Is there any, are there any uh, commonalities between certain types of prime ministers that had a certain uh, worldview, whether it be Christian or atheist or spiritualist? Yes. Could- well, one of the conclusions I came away with, and it wasn't one I was necessarily expecting, is that we had 19 prime ministers, 18 men and a woman uh, during the 20th century. I came away with a really very strong sense of their decency, so which I wasn't expecting, were sort of led by the media to believe that all politicians are corrupt, they're cynical, so they're in it for what they can get for themselves. That wasn't my uh, overview at all of the 20th century. I thought they were fundamentally a very decent, a very moral set of people. You can argue about how successful they were, but I think the vast majority of them came to politics uh, wanting to do the right thing, wanting to make the world a better place. And that's including both sides. I have no doubt whatever that that, to a large extent, was due to the Christian uh, homes in which they were forms of the Christian education they received. And it's interesting, people say, and I think it's true, that often the morality will uh, last a little bit longer than the faith. So you get uh, Clement Attlee, the Labour Prime Minister after the Second World War, saying... Uh, Christianity, I don't believe the mumbo-jumbo, which is how he described the doctrine, the teaching, but I I certainly do believe the ethics. Uh, So you get people like Athlete who were non-believers, but they were decent moral people. And that's because they imbibed um, the ethics in which they were raised at home and at school. uh, And yet it doesn't survive. So if there has been a decline in sort of a the morality of uh, politics in the last generation or so, we might begin to ask, well, is it because our prime ministers are no longer formed in that kind of home? So, so for, uh, and I think there's something in that. So, mm, that's so very for, interesting, yeah. Uh, yes. Mm. Being a priest for all these years, being so into politics, having written this book and delve into the past, with the archives, the interviews, mm. the books and the research to put together this uh, this beautiful book that I've got in front of me. How would you see the future, the trajectory of where we're going now? Yeah, well, uh, good question. So in uh, my conclusion, I do briefly look at the prime ministers of the 21st century. And it seems, at least initially, that uh, they continue to buck the trend. They continue to be more religious than society as a whole. So Gordon Brown spoke about his strong uh, religious faith. I think it certainly motivated him sort of, in some of his moral actions, as of uh, uh, his desire to help the third world. Uh, David Cameron would describe himself as a Christian. So Theresa May certainly was, and she's the son of uh, daughter of an Anglican vicar. So of, uh, I think she and her husband go to church every Sunday. So of, uh, she doesn't speak much about her religion, but when she does, she talks about how important it is. Then you come to Boris, of which uh, Boris is Boris, and so far um, yeah. he understands a great deal. But uh, and again, he describes himself as a Christian. But you just got to ask, and so what's there in practice? How does this really affect both your private life and also your so far, your public life? Mm. So far, but then you get to Rishi. So, so Rishi isn't a Christian. So far, I think he understands. He went to Winchester. Uh, a Church of England independent school where compulsory chapel on Sunday, prayers every evening. So, so I think there's an understanding. I'm told he goes to his local Anglican church in his constituency. And again, he will say that faith is very important to him. So uh, 
And when I launched this book in Parliament, I was very surprised and pleased by the number of people who came out of the woodwork from all political persuasions. So there were Conservatives, Liberal, Labour there, there were Scottish Nationalists, there were uh, Ulster Unionists, and there are a lot of Christians uh, in our political life. They need encouraging. I think they need to collaborate a great deal more and to talk about the great issues that are affecting us, to come together so for some of the issues where I think ordinary people are much more sympathetic to Christian values, Christian teaching, than so far the liberal media would have us believe. Mm. So, so far, there, there is hope there, but there needs to be a lot more encouragement. Well, I'm sure you're certainly part of that encouragement because I am certainly feel inspired and I'm no doubt our listeners have been. Can you uh, tell our listeners where they can get hold of this, this beautiful book, God in Number 10? I think it's in a number of bookshops. I think it's... Uh, uh, but otherwise, you can order it in, uh, on Amazon. You can get it online. Just sort of Google Mark Vickers, God in Number 10. It'll come up straight away. Okay, great. Um, Father, we're almost coming to the end. Would you mind finishing the programme with a quick prayer? Of course. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, Scripture tells us to pray for all people, particularly for those in leadership and authority. We pray for believers and non-believers. We pray that they may come to see something of your love, your compassion for all people. We pray that they might be guided by truth, by natural justice, for the desire to protect all the most vulnerable, particularly the unborn, the disabled, the elderly. We pray that in all spheres, including public life, your kingdom might come. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you. This was a Radio Maria podcast. If you enjoyed it, do please click like and subscribe on your podcast provider or leave us a review. Every bit of feedback helps increase our visibility and allows us to reach more people with the message of Christ's saving truth. And if you don't already, you can listen to Radio Maria live either online or on DAB in selected regions of the UK. We'd love for you to call in live and be part of the conversation. See our website radiomariaengland.uk for more details and a full schedule of programmes. And do please consider making a donation so that we can keep making more programmes like this. We are completely dependent upon the generosity of our listeners.